Hi, everyone. This is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. Thank you all for being here today. I'm delighted to introduce the fifth guest of the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Quinetta Robertson, a professor of management and SIOP fellow who came highly recommended for this series by our new SIOP president, Talia Bauer. Prior to starting today's conversation, just a quick reminder that most of the questions we will be asking Quinetta today were submitted by you all in advance of the broadcast, so thank you for your contributions. We also encourage listeners to ask questions at any point during today's conversation, if you're so inclined, via Twitter using the hashtag PsyopTalk. Lastly, all episodes of the PSYOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and housed on the PSYOP Conversation series landing page for those who are unable to attend the live podcast. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome and introduce Dr. Quinetta Robertson, the Fred J. Springer Endowed Chair in Business Leadership in the School of Business at Villanova University. With over 18 years of experience, Quinetta has been a visiting scholar at universities on every continent except for Antarctica and was elected Vice President-Elect and Program Chair-Elect of the Academy of Management for 2017 to 2018. Her research interests include developing organizational capability with a particular focus on diverse work teams. Quinetta, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Well, great. And so, um, Quinetta, we'll dive right in. What, what about the field of management interested you? I think my initial interest came from my work experience. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that I was a banker, and so I my background in, is in finance, and I was a financial analyst, and I, you know, was doing things that financial analysts do, but I was really intrigued by the people things that were going on. So, you know, wondering why um, two different, two people could have similar behaviors, but their performance evaluations would describe those behaviors differently. Or thinking about um, people who were at the higher levels of the organization and why there was such a disconnect between those and the people who were in more entry-level positions. Or thinking about, you know, when people had to work together, when there were cliques or people who didn't really want to work, who didn't really want to work together, why did that occur? And so I just got interested in the, the the things that were underlying the work that we did, and that probably is what drove my interest to the field of um, organizational behavior and, and I.O. So when you decided to go on to graduate school, did you know right away that you wanted to get your Ph.D., or was there a, was there a different path? Um, it was a different path. I... I got my bachelor's and my MBA in finance, and then I went into the work world. Um, and, and I had a, a bit of an aha moment. Um, the Robert Morris Association was having a paper competition. It was to write about a topic in finance. And I decided I wanted to enter the competition um, to nerd out a bit. And I... Um, decided that what I would do is to finish my work every day, try to finish my work by like 2 p.m. so I could spend the rest of the afternoon at the library. And after about two to three months of that, two things happened. One, I won the paper competition. And two, I was sad that I no longer had a reason to go to the library. 
And so I did some reflection and I was thinking, you know, why is this the case? And interestingly, at the same time, my bank was going through a right sizing, I'm using my air quotes, um, and they were looking for people to voluntarily leave. And so I thought maybe this was an opportunity to take the money and run. And I, in reflecting, uh, I thought, what am I best at and what do I love? And the answer to both of those was school. So hence the decision to get a PhD. And so that's when I started applying to programs. And so when you were applying to programs, did you have your sights set on academia at that time? Or was that something that you decided through the process of, um, of going through your graduate school experience? I think that my sights were already set on academia because you know, me thinking, um, my, my intention was, how can I be in school for the rest of my life? That's, that was my main driver. And, uh, and without having, you know, how do you go, how can you be in school for the rest of your life and get paid for it? And so, you know, I thought that being a professor was the route. I actually didn't know at the time that you could get a PhD and return to the work world, um, because that wasn't done a lot in the analyst or banking space that I was in. And so that was actually a point of learning that I had while I was in my graduate program. Great. And it sounds like you've been able to do the best of both worlds of academia and research and still doing some consulting as well. Yeah, I actually like working with um, organizations. I think it keeps my, um, I, I can keep one foot in the in the business world or you know one foot in the real world and you know while i can pay attention to what's going on in the literature and the newest novel newest and novel research findings i can also think about you know what are the changes that are going on in the world and how that might influence our research because i definitely think there's a relationship so thinking about you know being able to participate in those two worlds i i think really gives me a, um, a, a more comprehensive perspective on what we do. And so, um, so what advice would you offer to someone who is considering pursuing a career in academia? Ooh, uh, it, that's an interesting question because uh, I was just talking to a colleague yesterday. We both have um, MBA students who, for various reasons, think that they want to get PhDs. And we were talking about the conversations we had with those students who um, one says, one student says, I like the topic, right? So he's very much focused on uh, staffing. He's like, I like this topic. Where the other one said, is saying, I really like staffing, but I want to understand why this is the case and why this happens and how this happens. And to me, I think that latter interest is really needed for somebody who thinks that they might want to go into academia, um, particularly from getting, you know, thinking about grad school and the PhD, you know, you've got to really love this work. Um, my dissertation committee, you know, my professors at University of Maryland told me, You've got to pick a topic that you love because you're going to do it for the next 10 years. And that sounds daunting and it sounds, you know, a little bit overwhelming, but you're going to work on it for your dissertation. And then, 
you know, as you go into academia and try to achieve tenure, you're going to be continuing in that area. And so that takes you to about 10 years. And so, you know, number one is understanding what you have a passion for and um, what, where does that passion come from? Is it just about the topic? Is it about un getting under, under that topic and understanding what's going on? Um, do you want to teach? If you, you know, because all of these have different implications for the types of programs you go into, the types of jobs you apply for. So, so I think all of those, there, there has to be some reflection first and foremost to understand in what direction you need to go. So it sounds like some kind of combination of discovering passion and nurturing that intellectual curiosity. I think that's a good way of putting it. I describe myself as a natural learner. I'm always trying to, to read or talk to somebody about what their areas of interest are or what they're working on, because I think that that informs, again, what I do. And so I do think that that passion and, and learning are, do work together in thinking about pursuing a career in this area. And so what, what is a typical day on the job like for you, and what do you find most rewarding and fulfilling about your work? That's a difficult question because I don't know if there's a typical day. Um, when I was a junior faculty member, it was probably a bit more typical because I was focused on research and teaching and the little bit of service that I may have had to do. But I think as I've progressed throughout my career, I've taken on additional responsibilities. I've, you know, both that I've volunteered for or been asked to take on. So, um, you know, if I take, for example, this week, yesterday, I um, was doing, I formed a research and grant writing accountability group with some colleagues in my department. And so, we're going to um, use the summer to kind of keep everyone accountable for, for things they want to work on. And we had a check-in meeting, but then I spoke with an undergrad student who um, is thinking ab about an interest in research and also some other career options. Um, I then went to a meeting about the um, to, uh, to, to like a town hall meeting to hear about strength finders um, and the, how they're going to be used at the university with the incoming freshmen. And then I was grading papers because it's that season. Um, so that's all of those things are completely different than what will happen today, you know, as evidenced by this conversation, and then some other things. Some um, I do have to do some more grading today, but there's also a couple of I want to look at a do a little bit of digging in um, a bit of a lit review today because I want to look at some potential scales to use for an upcoming project. So I don't know if there's a typical day, but to answer your second question, I find all of that rewarding because. For me, it's always about impact. And so if I take the things that I was doing, you know, I, um, if I think about the, the, our research and grant writing accountability group, that's something 
relatively new for me. I have done work with the National Science Foundation. I was a program officer, but I think being able to have your research funded by NSF and to thinking about other ways to disseminate those findings can be a, a unique source of impact. I think that speaking with the undergrad student who reached out to me about, you know, she wanted my advice on career options. To me, that's having impact. If I think about um, reading my students, I was grading EMBA papers. And when I read them and they've referenced something we talked about in class or their learnings or takeaways, I feel like I've had impact. You know, being able to have this conversation and answer questions that people submitted. And, you know, so I, some people might say that I have a problem saying no, and that's completely fair. Um, but I, I'm such a, an optimizer. Like, I, I love an opportunity. And so if I have these various opportunities to have impact in various ways, then, you know, I want to do so. I love that notion of impact, and it sounds like you found a variety of channels to be able to do that uh, in your career. On the on the practitioner side, we got a question in advance about um, what practitioner-oriented service and skills, from your perspective, are in highest demand and most needed in our field. So this is interesting for me because I think that those that are highest in demand may not be the ones that are most needed. And I'll explain why I say that. Um, I remember early on in my career when I would do um, diversity training for organizations that would reach out to me. And I would go in and I'd be so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed doing these trainings because they would have told me, you know, here's an issue we have and we want to have a training. And so I would go and do it. And halfway through, nine times out of ten, I would realize that the issue that they said to me, what they described to me was the issue, was not the real issue. There was something else under there. And so I realized that, you know, number one, I needed to go back and what I learned about training and development and do more of my own needs assessment to find out what this organization really needs in order to do effective delivery. Um, but the other thing that I realized is that, again, there's often that that signals that disconnect between what they want versus what's actually going to make a change in an organization. So when I think about the things that are in high demand, you know, I get called about uh, diversity and inclusion things because that's, you know, very, um, that's what all the cool kids are doing and we hear about it in the news and, you know, um, diversity is a, a hot topic. But when we think about um, what they need, it's about not understanding what the meaning of diversity is or understanding what are the practices for managing the diversity, but what are the practices that are actually going to matter in that specific organization, given their work environment, given their culture, given their leadership. And so I think that, you know, if I think very, um, if I think about, you know, I pay attention, I read tip and pay attention to what's said about what are the new IO trends. You know, there are things about, um, I think there's a, you know, we know that there's increased role of technology. And I think we have to think about um, how technology changes what we know about the operation of, you know, how certain practices, which tend to be effective. If we take, for example, training, 
you know, understanding more about tech-based training and actually even training people on tech-based training. If I think about um, teaching, for example, in my PhD program, the development that we got around teaching was classroom teaching. We have to think about, you know, are we training our future, you know, trainers and professors, et cetera, to do more online or other kinds of tech-based training? Um, we know that there is more of a need for innovation as we think about um, progress and change. And part of that is not, and part of innovation, I think, is design thinking. So, you know, some people would years ago refer to it as system thinking, but I think more design thinking, thinking about it more um, comprehensively and being able to innovate around, you know, come up with solutions to problems and being able to really go through that whole design process. Um, I also think that we, our, our skills that we need, there's more of a, a need for agility. Um, because I think that there was a time where we, you know, we, we become experts in certain areas and we can sometimes have this plug and play mentality. So, you know, if, if I, I know what there, what are some of the practices that um, drive inclusive work environments? Well, I can't go peddling that to every organization. Say, hey, you should do these five things. Hey, you should do these five things. Because again, those, those organizations, because of their size, their industry, et cetera, are going to be different. And so we've got to think about, I have to be very agile in my thinking and my approach to be able to do that. And um, you've talked about some of these, these changes. And another one of the questions that we've gotten in advance is around the shift to a gig economy and how that's likely to lead to a very different um, type of workforce and a different type of uh, world of work. Things like more temp temporary and time limited project focused engagements for business professionals. How do you see that changing some of the dynamics of things like leadership, followership, commitment, um, compared to the world of work as we know it today? Yeah, I mean, I think at a fundamental level, we know that those, those, um, the changing nature of work changes the nature of the employment relationship or the employment contract. If I, you know, think about over time, when I was um, a financial analyst, I remember coming home one day after about a year of working, and I said, I, I think I'm going to quit. And my dad was just like, you can't quit. You've only been there for a year. Because that was a very baby boomer perspective, right, that you get a job, you get a good job, and you stay in that because it's about loyalty and stability. But then moving to Gen X, what we wanted out of work actually changed. And so as we think about generational differences, and along with these changing these changes in the nature of work, we've got to think about what do people want from their employer? What do employers want out of their employees? We have to think about um, as the question that was posed, you know, how do we lead when we may not see those people all of the time? How do we still maintain engagement and motivation and commitment? Um, we need to think about what does that mean for people working interdependently because most of our work is interdependent. So how do we, how can we be collaborative? How can we, you know, 
actually do teamwork in when people are not co-located. Um, thinking about, you know, one of the things that is at the root of people working effectively together is trust. How do we even build trust between employees when there may be more of, they, they may interface more via technology or, you know, thinking at a gig economy, there's these start and stops. So I think that we have to think about the contextual, the boundary, um, you know, the boundary conditions or the limits to the way we lead and the way we follow and how those might change. And I think, you know, from the ones that you mentioned, a gig economy versus globalization are very different. But if we think about a gig economy in a global environment, that adds a new level of complexity. So I think we have to be willing to explore the complexity of it, the stickiness, and get at, you know, what does that employment relationship look like? You, you talked about trust in there, and one of the things I think we hear about a lot with generational differences is the notion of loyalty and how, you know, loyalty isn't present anymore in the younger generations and things along those lines. So I, I don't know, can you comment a little bit on the nature of loyalty as you see the, the kind of work arrangements and nature of work changing in the future? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that when we talk about generational differences, the follow-up question is like, how do I manage millennials or how do I engage millennials? And I'm like, that's not what generational differences are all about. It's like like um, the millennials or, or Gen Z or whoever become the, the, the younger generation becomes like the, the challenge. But I think generational differences is about learning the best work styles or the value in the work styles of these different generations. And so, you know, a lot of times in our organizations, as part of our culture, our organizational cultures become very generational, if you will, right? That um, it, it's that people, you know, it's more of a, of a stable culture and we have meetings and we check in with each other, or, you know, we are more project-based and we engage and then we disband, et cetera. Well, those aren't necessarily about generations. Again, that's about organizational culture. And so understanding how to be effective, how to work effectively with, you know, people regardless of generation becomes important. And I think the first step of that in, in generating that trust is, again, meeting people where they are, right? So understanding that this is, these are my strengths. These are my, we don't say weaknesses, right? We say development areas of development, areas of opportunity. Um, and here are my work styles. Here's my preferred way of working. And there's no judgment on that, right? This is, there's no bias attached to that. It's just that's me. And then going on to my other team members. What are your strengths? What are your development areas? What are your preferred work styles? And being able to engage all of those. So we're not just doing things one way. And, you know, I probably am slipping into a conversation about diversity and inclusion, which would be no surprise. But I think that, that that's how we generate that trust is by, by showing um, that understanding and as well as the, the valuing of all these different approaches, diversity of thought, diversity of work styles, et cetera. How, how do you recommend that organizations and people at work uh, build diverse and inclusive cultures? 
Oh, how many hours do we have to talk? Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, so, so a couple of things. Uh, I'll drill this down. In terms, one, I want to separate diversity and inclusion because diversity is just about the, you know, um, similarities and differences that exist in a workforce. I think in, um, people often focus on creating diverse work environments, but many environments are already diverse. I think it's important to, in thinking about creating a diverse work environment, is think about who, what are the voices that are not there. And because if there's not that diversity of, of thought and voice and opinion, et cetera, then of course you're, you're missing out on the, the benefits, the, the creativity, the innovation, the problem solving, et cetera. Um, so, so one is thinking about, you know, where, what, is, what do we need? Who do we need? What's the talent that we need? What's the perspective that we need? Who are we missing? And so then trying to build diversity around that way. I think people often think about it as like a, a team roster um, and they check the box. And, and I think we have to be a bit more uh, thoughtful about it. So, so assuming that we've, we recognize that we have this diversity of thought or these different work styles or all these different voices, how do we then actually um, acknowledge them and use them, right? So um, there's, there's one kind of problematic approach is a, approaching people or valuing diversity because of group membership, right? So if, Quin, if someone comes to me and says, Quinetta, how do you think women would feel about this? Well, I can't speak for all of the women in the world, right? But I can speak based on my experience. And my experience doesn't necessarily just come from being female. It comes from being female, African-American, having a finance background, also being, you know, in IOB, from also living on the, in the Northeast of um, the U.S., but also, you know, having traveled extensively. All of those things. And so if we're going to really build inclusive environments, we got to make sure that we are valuing the unique talents and, and, and ideas and opinions of everyone because of, you know, their unique experiences, talents, et cetera. Um, and then thinking about how we can use those to create something new and different. Not just, oh, well, I value diversity, meaning, be happy that you're here and I'll ask you for your input periodically and I may or may not use it, but really how can we use those differences to actually move, you know, make us faster, stronger, leaner, you know, better overall as, as organizations, as teams, as individuals. Um, so that it's, it may sound simplistic and kind of Xanadu and bright eyed and bushy tailed, but I think that it just takes one initially a shift in perspective to actually understand that it's more than just the groups to which people belong, but what they can actually contribute to an organization. What, what do you think are the future challenges that the next generation of management and organization behavior practitioners and biopsychologists will be tackling? I think that the, you know, what's on the frontier is that being able to work 
to, to have that impact societally and, you know, in a, in a kind of public space. I think that, you know, there's so many people in our field who do this great work, either from a research standpoint or more of a, you know, practical standpoint, doing the work on the ground in organizations. But how do we actually change society? How do we actually, you know, inform public policy? How do we, you know, get that knowledge that we have, that the expertise that we have, and actually get the world to use it? And so I think that's our biggest challenge, is how to push it outside of our boundaries of, you know, PSYOP or outside of our university, but really get it more into the, the public space. But at the same time, I think there's an additional challenge of that is to not just be responsive to what we see is on the horizon or, or what we see is happening, but actually informing the world, like understanding, right, because we have this vantage point, we have this expertise. Here are some things we may, we may need to be thinking about that, you know, we, ha we aren't really having those conversations about yet. So I think there's a push-pull factor that we also um, are going to struggle with. That sounds like that comes full circle all the way back to impact, what we're talking about at the, at the top of the conversation. That's wonderful. All right, so last question I have to ask. This is kind of a fun one. It's a little bit of an aside, but t can you please tell us about Late Night with Q <laughs> for those of, those of our uh, listeners who may be familiar with this? So Late Night with Dr. Q is uh, a late night talk show that I started at the Academy of Management Conference. Um, a few years ago, about four years ago, I was asked if I wanted to have a session. The conference was in Philadelphia, and I'm from Philly, and so they were like, do you want to, you know, have a session where you highlight the city? And I was like, I don't know. But then I thought, if I did something, I wanted to be really innovative and different and slightly maybe live out my Oprah dream. But I was like, what's the latest that you can have a session on the calendar? Because I'm a night owl. And, uh, they said, I don't know, midnight. So I was like, all right, I want a late night talk show. And so I contacted a couple of friends. Uh, I wanted a co-host. I wanted a band. You know, I was kind of channeling Fallon and Kimmel. And so I compiled a late night talk show. And we thought that maybe 50 people would show up. And like 250 people showed up. There was standing room only. It turned into a dance party. And so <laughs> it became a thing. <laughs> so late night with Dr. Q. Oh, that's great. So for those of our listeners who are planning to attend Academy of Management Conference, make sure to, to um, attend Late Night with Dr. Q. All right. Well, uh, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time together today. Quinetta, on behalf of SIOP and the Visibility Committee, as well as our listeners, thank you so much for such an intriguing and engaging conversation and for being generous enough to share your time and perspective with us. Group, thank you for joining today's discussion. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation series live broadcast, where we'll be chatting with an industry and thought leader in our field, Bill Byam, the founder and executive chairman of DDI. In future conversations, we'll have the opportunity to hear from David Peterson at Google, Elaine Polakos at CEB, as well as outgoing SIOP president Fred Oswald and incoming or current SIOP president Talia Bauer. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you in June. In the meantime, take care.